Welcome to the Idealect Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Tyson. Before we get started today, I just want to say a word or two about the podcast structure. Of course, I anticipate that in constructing of this podcast, that it will continue to evolve and change. As you can already tell, given the last three episodes of the podcast, or the first three episodes of the podcast, this will continue to change. I'm not entirely sure what the structure will look like, but that's okay. And in fact, I don't necessarily want to know. I want to view this as a process of experimenting. So maybe one week it will be a compilation of a number of different interviews that I've done, although ideally that's not what I'd like to be doing. Ideally, I'd like to be in a spot where I could have a conversation, record it, and simply put it out as a podcast. I'm finding that that is a more difficult process than I anticipated. A lot of the conversations that I have are really good conversations, but then when I go back and listen to them, they don't necessarily make for good listening as an unedited podcast. And that's like that's the case with a, with a lot of these conversations that I've had. And I think a lot of that is just a practice thing. You know, it's it's really an art and it's difficult, I'm finding, to have a conversation, 45-minute, an hour conversation, even more than that, and have it be something that flows nicely, yet touches on all of the points that I want. So that's a practice thing on my part. Eventually, I hope to get there. Right now, uh, that's probably not going to be the case with most of the podcasts, but we'll see. So you'll see a little bit of a different structure, maybe, for today's podcast. And we will go from there. Today we're talking with Susan Dew. Susan is a staff writer at City Pages newspaper in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She reports on local news and writes really fantastic long-form in-depth stories. In this conversation, we talk about a piece she wrote in August of 2017 titled One Minneapolis Lawyer's Neo-Nazi Record Label and the Fight to Shut It Down. Another piece I think I bring up at one point is titled, Jurors Think This Daycare Provider Nearly Killed a Baby. How she did it, no one could say. Her writing really exhibits a strong sense of nuance and character. She does a fantastic job in working to try to understand the people in her stories as best she can. To keep the integrity of a human source, you have to show the whole gradient of who they are, their, um, the good and the bad parts. More broadly, we talk about reporting honestly and dynamically on the complexity of people, the changing nature of our social expectations. Uh, we, the, we touch on the pursuit of truth, which defines her work as a journalist. Her background is an immigrant from China, Confucian values, and uh, other topics. I had a minor technical difficulty, so we start our conversation right off talking about her piece on fascism. So I bring you my conversation with Susan Dew. So um, with the drowning out fascism story, um, you said it's difficult to find the nuance in it. Well, Can you say more about that? I mean, the the summary of the story was just that there, everybody in the metal community knew that there was this guy um, who was a known personality who was running one of the largest black metal Nazi music labels in the country. Um, he was so famous for it that he held this underground satanic festival that invited some of the most notorious um, Nazi bands in the world uh, to the Midwest and folks knew who he was when he walked around town they had spoken to him but um, for the most part didn't know his story or his motivations and so it was like a two-step two-step task that I had to, first of all, verify who he was, and that was a very fun investigation. 
and getting him to admit that he was behind this label. And then the hardest part was trying to get him to open up about why he was doing this. And so I'd say that I was partially successful at that. I desperately wanted to know um, because he, he was also widely regarded as a nice guy in person. Um, obviously a complicated character. He had um, friends of color. He worked with people of color in his uh, capacity as a lawyer at his, at his firm. And when I spoke to him, he was willing to pick up the phone. And when I told him that I had an open mind and that I wanted to just hear what his motivations were, he seemed open to that idea. But I understand that as, as a reporter, you're trying to write a story about somebody, you're trying to publicize. Um, all the stuff about somebody's life that they might not, uh, while they may be open to speaking to you one-on-one -on -one as one human to another, they may not want to do it on the record. And so I'd say I'm partially successful at that story because I wasn't able to get him to repeat on the record what he told me off the record. And you know, it would have served the world better if I had been able to convince him to do that, or if he had defended himself uh, publicly. But you know, the 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 reaction to that story, I think, probably um, uh, validated his fear about coming out and simply acknowledging what he had done. And I mean, the reaction was was to go to his firm and immediately ask for his termination. Um, people were leaving negative reviews on the firms like Google, uh, Google site and Facebook and all of that, which I didn't think was, I don't know, I have, uh, I have reservations about um, engaging with other people that way. I think it's, it's better to do it more directly. But yeah, I mean, that was a story where like immediately you would go and uh, I think the easier story would have been to just dismiss this man as a racist, <clears throat> as uh, kind of the worst example of humanity, somebody who seemed to promote uh, eugenics and um, the suppression of rights of other people, but you also had to take into account internet subculture and uh, these edgelord tendencies in the metal and satanic world, and you have to do your best to try and see how sincere a guy could be. Um, through, through running a, a black metal label. Did that really make him a white supremacist? And did he, perhaps there was like a cognitive dissonance in his mind? Um, I really tried to rack my, my mind about understanding where this guy could be coming from because it was so, it was, it was just so strange to me. Um, just seeing his online personality and trying to match it with his real life personality. Yeah, do you feel like you made any progress in that understanding? Um, because I never got to hang out with him, um, I did speak to him for about 40 minutes on the phone. Um, and, you know, he, he did explain, not in an entirely satisfactory way, uh, what he was thinking. And because it was off the record, I can't exactly repeat it here. Sure. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know st still. But I do believe that in that case, because he did 
uh, I have to be careful about what I can yeah, repeat. Yeah, for sure. um, I do believe that if the metal community, which purports to be such a close community of mostly progressive people, had reached out to this guy with the belief that with their support and understanding they could bring him back into the fold of what is decent, that he could have been convinced that the type of music that he promoted um, was, was a serious matter and that he should have um, he, he should have taken, oh, I don't know. Um, I believe that if other people had reached out to him, that he wouldn't have progressed so, so far down this like extremist Like he could have been line. reasoned out of believing the, the things that he did. Yeah. Hmm. People just didn't want to really confront him about it huh. because he was this nearly eight foot tall, like, humongous bodybuilder of a satanic metal fan. Um, that was the strangest thing about that story. And I, I wish I had brought that out more in the story. Um, it, it was hard to defend him when he wouldn't defend himself. But I did think personally that he, you know, if we really do all care about each other in this world, and if we believe the premise that everybody can be redeemed, that maybe somebody should have made an effort to do to do that for him. Yeah. Because people only become radicalized when they're left to their own devices and they don't have that support and nobody calls them out, nobody takes them aside personally and shows them that um, they're cared for. Yeah. Yeah, can you kind of yeah abstract that a little bit more? I'm so interested in, um, yeah, this disparity, um, seeming like a nice person, but then having like a dual personality that, that doesn't come out, um, that, I don't know, I don't know how to say it. Um, I think you kind of already said it, but... Um, how how can we internalize the lesson from this story, and not just this story, but um, in in any story? How how can we as as readers or um, consumers, I guess, of the story? How can we internalize that and learn from it? Mm. Is that something that can be taught? Regarding uh, the dualism and uh, the disparity between how people are and the way that they behave, I think that's pretty, that's a fairly uh, complex question that sometimes you never get the answer to because you can only speculate what people, what people really believe and their actions are what they present themselves to the world as. So to take people at face value, sometimes their action does matter more. But as storytellers, we have to try and excavate secret feelings and motivations and what it was that formed a person, what it was that formed their motives. and. Yeah, I think that should be something that human beings uh, try to apply in their interactions with each other on a daily basis in the real world um, over things that are much simpler than this. 
Um, and that probably just comes from, I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> um, that probably just comes from like your basic values and how you believe that you should approach another human being. Do they deserve the benefit of the doubt? Do they deserve you going to them directly and asking them to their face um, privately at first what it is that is going on in their lives before you um, pull them into the public, politicize their drama? Um, this is what human beings should you know, respectfully offer to each other upon first discovering that you have maybe a problem with somebody who doesn't see the world the way you do. Hmm. What are, when you hear the word values, what are the first three things that come to mind that motivate you in your work? Um, I think about my own family's values. I think about the work ethic of my immigrant family. Um, I think about cultural values, meaning um, sort of Confucianism, and I think about, this is so cheesy, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think about uh, All right, we can we can elaborate on it. We can flesh it out. Yeah. Well, I think about um, just just laws that I hold myself to as as I deal with my fellow human beings. Hmm. What um, are what for are example, a couple examples? Uh, I worked for a time in South Africa for a global residency while I was in journalism school, and I worked as a reporter at the Star newspaper in Johannesburg. A concept that is innate to South African culture is called Ubuntu. You may have heard about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you've seen the movie Avatar, uh, there these these beings, um, these blue people, when they approach each other, they say, "I see you," and it just means that you acknowledge and recognize this other soul in front of you and the concept of Ubuntu is kind of like that where there is this underlying premise that all people are good and they are all parts of a group and they are whole and healthy when their relationships are intact and when one person um, does something that offends the order of the group or does something to wrong another individual, that this person needs to be brought back into the fold of the group by apologizing and by, by fixing what it was that they did wrong, um, redeeming themselves. Mm -hmm. And in that way, only can the can the group be um, can be made whole again? Um, this idea that we can't just uh, we can't just discard people who make mistakes, and that everybody can be redeemed is essential to this to this value that I hold dearly. Hmm. How? How do you think that affects the way you write or the way that you do your reporting? Um, I think it affects the, the fact that I, I think it led to my being a reporter um, because there's a lot of stuff that you can read out there, um, work that other reporters put together. And you never know, if you don't do it yourself, if you didn't have these conversations yourself, um, how people were approached and what opportunities they were given to explain, um, what questions were asked. And so 
I have always wanted to be directly a part of the, the investigation, to, to ask these questions myself, um, and to know that I did approach you know, everybody involved in a situation, in a story, to get these different perspectives, um, because everybody deserves a chance to be a part of, to have some say in a story that they're a part of. Um, and in the writing of my stories, I, I guess um, it factors into characterization of people. Um, I do look for and, and strive to capture the nuances in personalities that appear in my stories. Um, following the examples of, of great writers like Catherine Boo, um, where the most compelling characters have always been morally intricate and complex people. Of course, all, all people are that in real life, but as a writer, to, to communicate that is, can be a very challenging thing. And I love that challenge because to keep the integrity of a human source, you have to show the whole gradient of who they are, their, um, the good and the bad parts. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, do you ever have instances where you struggle to see one side or the other of somebody? Yeah, all the time. And I so think I, yeah, I mean, this, these are very idealistic thoughts that I, Probably had more of when I started the job, but um, yeah, experience has taught me that there are lots of people who are very hard to understand and to sympathize with in life. Um, maybe at certain time, at certain times of their lives, are particularly difficult to understand in terms of the decisions that they make and why they hurt the people that they do. Sorry, I try to be specific most of the time. No, that's but, okay. Um, I had a question, but I forgot it. Oh. I do a lot of stories about crime. That can be hard to make sense of. And in those instances, the best you can do is reach out to characters who might be considered antagonists and do your best to try and ferret out uh, you know, some voice and personality and humanity in them, but sometimes it's very difficult. Hmm. Yeah. Um, how important, and this is kind of a, a general question, um, but how important is it to understand people? Well, um, it's very important. It is probably, I mean, kind of like what you said earlier, I, I believe that all intolerance in the world stems from misunderstanding of people. Um, it's just, it seems like such a difficult concept for people to grasp sometimes, but... Why do you think that is? I think Nowadays, um, there is a sense that there's this 
need and a pressure and a drive for for us to socially police each other to be perfect. And I'm not sure that's human nature. There's a lot of ignorance in the world. There's a lot of inexperience in the world. Um, I wish that socially we were cultivated more to teach each other with empathy rather than um, holding each other to expectations of perfection without making the effort to help people change their own minds. I think that's really essential to becoming what I think we all want to be, which is um, I don't know how to put that. That's so good. I'm just trying to figure out where to go next. Sorry, this, <laughs> no, is, this is so is, abstract. This is I so hate good. the abstract. No, actually, I. this is kind of how I think, too, and I have trouble bringing it <laughs> down to reality. Um, but no, I think it's it touches on so many things that we don't often touch on, you know? Um, and it, I think it these kinds of conversations, at least in my mind, start to get at, get at the heart of, I don't know, why things are the way they are and you know human nature like it sounds intense but it's just it's kind of an everyday thing um, and I find it I mean for one interesting to try to understand um, and I think important um, so no I think this is really good um, I wanted to circle back um, To you were talking, I think, where, where, would the, where did this come from? Um, you were talking about the politi politicization, politi I cannot say that word, politicization um, of issues, I guess. How do you define politicization? What do you think? I don't recall what I was talking about either. <laughs> I couldn't either. <laughs> but, um, um, I don't know. Is that enough of a starting point, politicization? Um, you know, I was probably going off about how we need to talk to each other as one-on-one on, on one on, one on one as, as people if we have a problem with each other instead of uh, dragging it out for you know, into the public so as often as we do if we really wanted to fix things. Um, I guess uh, everything is political, right? Like, just wrinkles in, in our relationships with each other become political. Um, things, things like uh, you know, um, hmm. misunderstandings between two people can become uh, can become a, a, a big political issue with with uh, resounding uh, consequences and implications for the world at large. And I think. Issues can get conflated when we overstep the first thing that we should do um, in situations where there's conflict, which is to approach a person directly. Um, maybe this has to do with the passive aggressiveness of the world in the internet age. Um, the fact that we sometimes lack the courage to just go to somebody first and see them for the complicated and perhaps damaged individuals that they are and seek to understand and to find 
common ground, hmm. which I don't think people give enough of an effort to doing. Yeah, where can that? Where can we find that courage? Do you think, or why? Why do we not allow ourselves to find that courage? I just don't think that it's a value that is taught, or hmm. at least remembered as we get older perhaps. Lots of people carry a lot of stress with them. Um, the world is not kind to adults. Um, the, there, there is you know, this constant expectation of um, Uh, scratch that. Um, I think it also helps to study a little bit about, um, you know, restorative justice and and uh, indigenous cultures and how they approached um, group living and Ubuntu and things like that, where these cultural values really do stress. Um, directness and treating people with frankness and giving people chances and the possibility of redemption. I don't know, I guess, I mean that's just personal too, like you see all the time. Um, people calling each other garbage and trash and uh, dismissing folks with uh, who commit certain crimes, um, dismissing folks with certain addictions, weaknesses, um, and it's kind of a, a big liberal hypocrisy actually when um, where on the one hand, uh, you might believe and say that everybody deserves a second chance. Um, like for instance, in the criminal justice world with um, you know, second chances for felons or, or the need to rehabilitate uh, you know, people convicted of uh, giving material support to terrorism. Um, but on the other hand, immediately dismissing as irredeemable, um, you know, right-wing extremists. Yeah. What's, this might be an obvious or funny question, but what's valuable about not seeing, not labeling somebody that and then dismissing them? I think it's just contrary to human nature to think that uh, one personality trait could define a human being or that um, one infraction, however large, could not be corrected and that people don't evolve and have character arcs throughout their life. It's simply an oversimplification of what human nature is capable of. And that, I think, just offends me. Because it isn't truthful. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> reading um, reading the the story about uh, the the record store owner, and then I was reading uh, the story about the the woman who was the daycare provider, and the the boy that was um, had the traumatic injury. I get the sense that, like just from reading that, that you are like a very curious person. Like that really comes across in your writing. Um, why, well, what's, 
What's valuable about curiosity? Um, I think everybody's curious. That's why I have a job. People like to click on things that pique their curiosity. And I'm lucky enough that I have the type of job where if anything strikes me as very interesting, unanswered questions, I can do these deep investigations myself and spend all my time on them and try and turn it into a work of, hmm, dare I say, um, you know, I, I try and, and create an artful project out of it and I get paid for that and that's awesome. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about artful? Why did you choose that word? Um, I'm lucky that I have a very unique job in the Twin Cities where I get to do these long-form stories and I'm always reaching to um, produce works like, uh, like stories that I might study in journalism school that I'd read in The New Yorker, oh that's an entirely different level, um, where it's literary and characters are fleshed out to try and to try and make them appear as three-dimensional as you can and often don't see in straight news stories. So I'm working on, I, I get to, um, I get to spend a lot of time thinking about wording and creative uses of, of words. And that isn't always um, possible in the journalism world. Like, it's very clear that uh, most, most newspapers um, just want to get the facts out there as accurately as possible and in logical chronological order. But at City Pages, with these long-form cover stories, I can do more and I can, I get to prioritize how a line sounds musically and I can really dig into people and portray them in a way that is, that is fleshed out for all of their for all of their complexities. What keeps you going when um, you feel like the world's telling you to stop? Um, not caring, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, the world tells you to stop a lot. And um, I have a job, so it's a responsibility. And I know that I do help people with my work. I know that I contribute to greater understanding of issues, of personalities, and I do have a drive to attack these um, these developing problems sometimes in, in our community where, you know, bullies get away with things. And I guess I'm fueled on some level by, uh, I get angry um, when, I don't, I don't know how many of my stories you've read, but, um, I do a lot of, um, I guess, what you would call like social justice stories, where um, you know about union uh, fights or about um, schools and uh, you know investments in in various public uh, interests and about um, you know transparency in the government and all of that. I guess I'm 
I'm often driven by just pure rage when it comes to um, bullies that get away with it and um, people who willingly lie and I, I do believe that the truth has a way of getting out and um, if I put in enough effort that I can help it get out and simply because um, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing regardless of what anybody says. Um, I make a lot of mistakes obviously like Yoda says failure is the greatest teacher um, and I try to learn from my failures but um, at the end of the day I can't I know I can't get better if I don't keep on doing it so yeah um, that piece about rage um, can you say more about turning something that is um, associated with like destructive tendencies mm -hmm. but turning that into something constructive can you say how um, I don't know why doesn't it come out in a destructive way for you not that it never does I mean it does for everybody sure but how do you how do you channel it to something constructive well destruction is just not productive um, by its very nature so I mean there's I've, I've always been solution oriented um, I try to bring that out in every story that I write that there are pathways toward a solution and that's part of why I do this it's there's there's no point in in burning down the only systems that you have I believe um, to be a part of the solution you do have to diagnose the problems and you have to do it uh, you have to do it um, I want to say can't say fearlessly but you, you you have to do it without reservations and you're probably going to piss people off um, when you do that, but you can't fix a problem that nobody recognizes. And so that's where I apply my anger for some of the, you know, the, the brokenness of our systems, the failures of people in authority with power and but then to be a part of the solution you do have to um, you do have to think of ways that you can help and you know you know all those hokey reasons why journalism needs to persist in the darkness and all of that. So, um, yeah, that's why. Yeah, can you, before you mentioned talking, or you mentioned um, being motivated by some of your family values and Confucian values, mm. can you um, talk a little bit about your background and um, the Confucian values and how that fits into your work? Sure. Um, Do you have to be done by a certain time, by the way? Uh, no, I'm okay. done with my work for the day. Okay. Uh, if we go for a little bit longer here, and then okay. I'd like to take yeah, your whatever you need. photo, if that's all right. So, um, I was born in China, um, and my parents grew up during the Cultural Revolution. Um, when they came to America, my, my father... Um, had very little. He came as a grad student, um, studied engineering at Akron University, uh, had to, you know, deliver pizzas in New York on his bike over winter break, thought he'd nearly die, and 
he would he, he brought us all over to America after him my mom came out like about a year after he got to the US and so then they sent for me how old were you when you I was moved? like four years old okay. and so um, yeah I, I, I was in China for a year without my parents and it was raised by my grandparents um, but when we got to America it was you know, we all lived on his graduate student stipend, which was not very much for an entire family. We lived in a friend's basement um, on mattresses that we dragged out of the dumpster. And from there, it was just up and up. Um, nowhere to go but up from there. So my dad had my dad always worked so hard um, to get his permanent residency in America and at that, if you know a little bit about immigration, um, you have to get your green card and then you become a permanent resident and during all that time you can't fuck up with the law or with your employer because if you get fired you get deported. If you have to have a reason for being in the country, whether it's you know school or a job. Um, where your employer is going to sponsor you and if you commit a crime you're out of here so we were just model uh, permanent residents model immigrants uh, just trying to keep a low profile um, and not make the US government angry with us for whatever reason and we you know eventually we got a house and that was awesome because we had always um, lived in apartments for for all of our lives and I guess like generations before that and we got our own house and then we got a bigger house and um, my dad could send me to college and it was like the American dream so that's my family story hmm. and um, of course like all along that way there and now I'm learning a little bit more about it but um, my parents uh, just had to swallow a lot of disrespect and heartache along the way. Um, you know, my mother, my father eventually made enough money so that my mom didn't have to work um, in these, you know, sort of odd jobs that she had throughout the years. And I remember he told me it was because um, he wanted to spare her the humiliation of the workplace. And my mom is, you know, the type of person who, she was like a, a literary teacher in China, but never quite learned the English language and um, struggled a lot and was condescended to um, basically all of her years in America. And so, um, I guess I recognized my father's duties to his family and to his 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 consideration for his wife and the sacrifices that he made um, that he took on himself as values that I wanted to emulate in my life and um, uh, to me he always seemed like the the kind of guy who who stuck up for small people and so. Um, he always told me not to get involved with politics because that wasn't a good thing for us in China. But um, I think he also raised me to be the kind of person who couldn't exactly look away from it. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you said this or not, but do you know the, the initial reason that your parents moved? Was it just for your dad to go to school here? Yes. Okay. So his, he came from a very poor family. He was the fourth child, um, had three older sisters. His parents kept on having kids because they needed a son. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, he's, he's the youngest kid and he's the only boy. So all the responsibility for his parents would fall to him. And um, during the Cultural Revolution, you know, they ate off of ration cards and uh, siblings were being sent to the country to be re-educated. And um, he 
was uh, he was nurtured to be kind of the the protector of the family from a very young age, like all the responsibility rested with him. And so um, he studied hard and um, back then it was very difficult to get into college at all and he got into a very good school in Shanghai which um, was the place to be as a student in the 80s and he then you know worked even harder and got into a graduate school in America which was absolutely insane so um, he took the opportunity of course to to emigrate and at that time you know his family had no money like his my grandmother was a factory worker all of her life started as a child working in the factory and my grandfather was a tailor and they had too many mouths to feed always and um, when my father went to America they let him go on the condition that you know, he explained, because they already had me at that time, that in America they could have more children and he could have a son. I hate that there are parts of the world where the state controls the media. I hate that it is dangerous to report the truth and that certain people can control the truth, can control history, and still do a pretty good job of it in the age of social media. And that's another, uh, that's a major thing that stokes my rage um, whenever I think about that because it's, it's just, uh, it's such a basic human right to know the truth. And anybody who suppresses it, I, I just, um, God. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just inexcusable, and I think it's um, to limit somebody's access to information and uh, to information that they themselves can extrapolate their own conclusions from is it's a basic human right. Yeah. Well, how do you respond to the idea that some ideas are too dangerous to put out into the world? Because I believe strongly in the ability of people to think critically, I don't believe that there's an idea that is too dangerous to reveal to the world. Um, it's not like the idea won't exist, it'll just be suppressed. And I think dangerous ideas are more dangerous when they are suppressed. Um, I'm a reporter, so I want things to be out in the open where people can see and acknowledge and attack and discuss them and create better understanding um, amongst each other when they do so. So, I mean, you're asking, like, basically, should hate speech be, um, should, should it be illegal, right? <laughs> like, um, the worst of all possible ideas, uh, I, I don't believe, could be just so um, so attractive as to as to um, brainwash reasonable people. The only way that people really get brainwashed is when they don't ha have the opportunity to see for themselves the whole spectrum of ideas out there. So. I trust in people, and maybe that's idealistic, but I believe that most people in the world are intelligent and moderate, reasonable, and capable of critical thinking.
Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Um, just, um, oh yeah, can you, um, maybe you kind of already talked about it, but um, Confucian values, what, what does that mean to you? Um, I guess basically, as we are taught in the Chinese culture, um, it's just uh, respect for your elders, um, the acceptance of your responsibilities uh, as young people, as able-bodied people, of doing what you can to contribute to the whole in a positive way, um, and you know, bearing your burdens without complaint. Um, all these things that are kind of archaic, really, but uh, still play a big role in in the way that the Chinese intel intelligentsia is still, um, you know, uh, brings up their children. So, um, yeah, I guess that factors into just my my belief that everybody deserves basic respect. Yeah. Um, kind of got two more categories for you, um, and okay. First one, what? It's kind of a broad question, but what does the world need more of? The world needs more literacy. The world needs. Um, more tolerance, the world needs, um, the world needs to slow down and think before they speak, the world needs to get out in the sun and for people to interact with each other in the real life. Um, the world needs more readers, readers of multiple sources of information. Um, the world needs people that pay attention to the world and yeah, I think that's following a familiar, uh, a similar theme. Hmm. But, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, can you say just a little bit more about literacy? What do you what do you mean by literacy? Um, I mean critical reading. Um, it frustrates me to no end when um, when people look at the headline and they share the clip without reading the article, or you know skim through a few graphs and and don't. Um, really think about where the information is coming from or the overall message of a piece um, and when they lead their emotion when they let their emotions um, kind of impulsively sway their reactions without uh, really digesting the news or any piece of uh, literature and um, Last one for you. Um, it's kind of an intense one. You ready? <laughs> okay. I, I really I, I like this question. Um, other than another person, what would you die for? Other than another person, what would I die for? Um, <laughs> I would I would die for my job. I mean, I would die in the pursuit of the truth. Lots of reporters have. Um, if I, I think it's worth it. Um, yeah, it's it's really a no-brainer. I mean, luckily, in, I'm never at that risk in the commission of my job here. But the job. 
the feeling of responsibility to your job, um, of trying to uncover truths that people don't want you to uncover, that's universal in this profession. And I don't want to sound like an asshole because obviously there's, there's really no th threat to my life as a reporter for City Pages. Um, and I have no delusion that anything that I'm doing here would put me in that position where somebody would be so affected by what I wrote that they would want to kill me for it. But yeah, I, if I were somewhere else, if I were doing different stories, um, I would have, it's also hard to say because it depends on um, what everybody does in, in situations that they have no experience with. But um, yeah, I, I would have no, it's hard to answer that question. But yes, yeah. I, would, I would die in the commission of doing journalism. Hmm. Do you ever want to do journalism in China? I have um, in 2000, 10 or so when I was in college. Um, I went to China to do a report on the treatment of the mentally ill and uh, worked on a little documentary with a friend of mine. And it was difficult to be a journalist in China trying to pretend not to be a journalist. In we said we were students working on a project, but only because they wouldn't let us into the country otherwise. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Man. So did you, in that project, did you feel like, I don't know, like you were making the difference? Um, That's kind of a weird way to ask it. But. You know, it was, because it was a student project, it wasn't published um, in an, any official you know, channels. It was self-published. But um, you know, I don't know how many people it reached. Um, we did have screenings at school and such, but I don't really um, it, was, it was informative for us as young journalists. And I think we uncovered a larger story that would have been important for people to see, perhaps. We could have done a better job with more funds and more time, but um, overall, I think our, our takeaway was that in a country where there's so much stigma surrounding mental illness, um, that perhaps it was better um, for the groups of uh, patients who could be with each other and um, live together in like sort of like a group situation with with nurses who saw them for what they were and who they were and you know they we profiled this place called Crazy Bake which is not very politically correct but it gave um, people with various mental illnesses the chance to bake bread and sell it um, in popular, you know, tourist destinations and such. And they would make money, and they had jobs, and they all got to live together in this nice compound. Um, and because everybody knew uh, how, you know, each other's problems, um, nobody judged them for who they were. And they could live so freely, although kind of separately from the rest of Chinese society. Um, and we, uh, we compared that with a man who, although had, he had a schizophrenic episode, um, he and saw a doctor regularly and, and still struggled with complications from it, um, really tried so hard to, to hide his condition from everybody in his, um, his little ghetto and in his, in his life and in his work. And, um, he was so lonely because of that, and 
so terribly unhappy compared to um, the folks at Crazy Bake. And so um, I think our takeaway was an important message that could have been uh, disseminated more widely. Hmm. How do you, sorry, I'll make this but last But it was one. practice. Um, how do you know if you're making a difference or not? Mm. Various ways. I suppose, um, you know, feedback from folks who see your work. Um, sometimes in web numbers, how many people are sharing it widely, how many people are talking about it and um, discussing it uh, online. Um, I can, it's always very hard to tell. I don't know if I'm making a difference, but I am still trying to, and I am striving toward that by improving with every story and giving my best effort to it, not cutting corners, and putting a sincere effort in to tell these stories. And I can't, uh, I don't know if people even read them. I'm sure they do but it's not something that I really concern myself with. Um, yeah, I don't spend too much time thinking about that. Huh. You just yeah. gotta, I just do it. Yeah, well, keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you to Susan for taking the time for this conversation. You can follow Susan's work, uh, follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is S-H-I- J-U-N-D-U so follow her there and look for her writing in City Pages newspaper for Minneapolis that's it for today as always if you want more content go to theidelect.com there's more podcasts on there and writings the project as you know is always being updated so be sure to follow along thanks and we'll catch you next time